Good morning, friends. It's good to see you here today. So thankful that we can be together and take a close look at Psalm 8. It's not as close as we would like, of course. We're having to kind of speed through this wonderful chapter in eight weeks. As I mentioned last week or the week before, first time we went through this about 15 years ago, it took us eight months to get through Romans 8. And uh, so we're having to kind of fly through this um, a little bit unnaturally quick. But I guess one reason uh, I've decided to do this is because we finished Psalm 119 seven weeks ago, and I'm going on sabbatical in about a week and a half for the summer, and I wanted to leave you with something substantial. And what's more substantial than Romans 8? So we have ventured into this wonderful chapter I hope that the Lord's blessing you through it as we've looked into it, as brief as it's, as it's been. I want to read for you, if you would, from Romans 8, verse 31. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn there with me, Romans chapter 8. Let's look at verse 31. Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Good question. This is a good question that Paul's asking, especially on the heels of what he's just explained earlier in the chapter and earlier in the book. What shall we say to these things? It's one thing to say that my mom is for me, right? It's one thing, another thing to say that a teacher's for me or a coach is for me. You know, some authors who are in the writer's world, authors are looking for endorsements of famous people or other famous authors to say, this guy's for me, see, you ought to read my book, he's endorsed my book, he's endorsed me. Or in the political arena, we see the same thing. Politicians want endorsements from powerful politicians so that they'll say, he's endorsing me, he's for me, or she's for me. But here Paul is saying, God is for me. That's substantially more significant, isn't it? To say God is for me, not just my mom, but God is for me. God is irrefutably for us. And Paul explains this here in detail. How is God for us? You know, those of you who've been here through the Romans 8 series are saying, hold on, we skipped, we skipped verses 29 and 30. Those are my favorite verses. Okay, let's go back there then. Let's do that. Let's go back to verses 29 and 30 and see what they say. And maybe we could even see in those verses some ways that God is for us. For those whom he foreknew, that's God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. <laughs> it seems that God is for us even in those verses. I mean, are there any other verses that, that demonstrate that God is for us more than those two? Amazing, amazing verses, amazing truths that, that demonstrate, that describe God's love and commitment to us, his people. These verses here in uh, chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, describe for us God's purpose. You want to know what God's purpose is, what God's will is? I wish I knew God's will. Well, here it is. Listen, look, I'm going to show for you God's divine purpose. 
starting with the goal, God's goal for you and me. Do you notice that his goal is there in the beginning of verse 29? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And of course, what is God's goal? It's, it's the good of verse 28. Another favorite of yours, isn't it? All things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That's a wonderful verse. We, we expounded on that last week. But the good that Paul's talking about in verse 28 is revealed in verse 29. That is, becoming like Jesus. That's the good. All things in our life, both good and bad, both difficult and fun, all these things on both sides of that equation, all things work together for the good of me becoming like Jesus. That's the good. God is actually defining what is good in that scenario, not us. If our destiny were left up to us, we'd be in deep trouble, wouldn't we? Have you ever thought about that? What if you were in actually in charge of your life? What if you actually could determine your destiny? Each one of us would be more selfish than we already are. And our destinies would be horrible, by the way. This is, this is what Paul is revealing here. Two goals of God's divine purpose. Two goals are seen in verse 29. I want you to look at it with me closely. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's goal number one to be conformed into the image of his son, to become like Jesus. That's God's primary goal. That was part of God's plan, which was hatched in eternity past. And, and we know that if God's plans something, what happens? It happens, right? If God plans it, it happens. You remember the story of Job, right? At the end of his book in chapter 42, after learning his submission to God, he says, I know that you can do all things, Job speaking to God. I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If God plans it, it happens. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115, verse 3. He does all that he pleases, right? Yes, these are wonderful truths for us who love God. So God's plan is to create a group of people who would steadily move towards perfection, move towards Christ-likeness who would live for and reign with Jesus Christ throughout eternity, life and eternity. This is what God is up to in human history. He's creating a holy nation to fulfill his divine purpose of creating us into image bearers of Jesus Christ. That's his first goal. This, this has so many important ramifications for our daily lives, and I don't have time to cover all the ramifications because remember we're flying through Romans 8, but one ramification I can't ignore this morning, I have to say it, and here it is. These verses, 29 and 30, affirm more than any other verses in all of Scripture the eternal security of every believer. Look at this. Look at how powerful this is. Some people believe, of course, and teach that a genuine believer can lose their salvation if they sin badly enough, and these verses refute that. If a person could lose their salvation, it would require God, according to these verses, to fail in his purposes. God would have to fail in his purposes. If someone lost their salvation and ended up in hell after having their sins forgiven, after being foreknown by God, after being called by God, after being justified by God, then that would mean that God failed in bringing us to glory. 
All these things that he's done in preparation for our future have failed. And that's impossible. Why? Because all that God plans succeed. No plan of yours can be thwarted, right? Our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. Not some, not most, all. And God, of course, cannot be a divine failure. God would also have to have broken if he couldn't fulfill these promises and this plan. He would have to break his covenant with himself that he made before time began. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 1.22. And who has also put his seal, that is speaking of God, he's put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Of what? Fulfilling his plan. God, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, promises, guarantees that he will fulfill his plan for us. This is why Paul began Romans 8 the way he did in verse 1. There is, thou, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He sounds pretty confident. Why? Well, because God's behind it. <laughs> God promised it. God plans something, it happens. So Paul, of course, knowing God, can say with confidence, there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. There will be no failure. There will be no partial fulfillment in the sovereign plan of God to save his people from their sins and to conform them into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We cannot lose our salvation because we had nothing to do with producing it. We cannot work ourselves out of something we didn't work ourselves into. Since God saves, he sustains, we don't. Our salvation is dependent on God who is faithful and will do it, right? What's the second goal? I said there was two goals. There is, look at the end of the verse. We're being conformed to the image of his son in order that he, that is the son of God, might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? How is Christ firstborn? Well, it's not like, okay, God created Jesus or God created the second person of the Trinity and now he's born into existence. No. Firstborn is a biblical reference to pre you were preeminent amongst your siblings. Everything revolved around you, including the inheritance. You were preeminent. You're the firstborn. That's what this refers to. Jesus Christ, the preeminent one amongst all of God's people. There's no question amongst God's people who's the most preeminent, right? Jesus is. He's the head of the church. He is the preeminent one that's spoken of often in that way in the New Testament. So the second part of, of or the second goal uh, of God's divine purpose is to make much of Jesus, the preeminent one, to lift him up. The, the goal and purpose of each and every saved life, listen, this is your goal as you live the Christian life, is to make much of Jesus. Your goal is to lift up Christ, exalt Christ with your life, with your thoughts, with your attitudes, with your practices, with your conduct. Lift up the value and worth of Jesus Christ. The grand purpose of God is to make Jesus the focal point of all existence, and the miracle of miracles is God uses us to accomplish that. God uses you and me, his people, to bring about the preeminence of Jesus Christ in the eyes of all who have ever lived. I'm going to explain it to you how this happens. Our salvation 
of course, results in the transformation of, of his people, and that transformation results in the passionate worship and praise and honor throughout eternity. Those are the two goals. You're changed to be like Jesus, and as a result, you make much of him. Those are the two goals Paul speaks of here in verse 29. Everything about us from the time we're saved and onward is focused on making much of Jesus by exalting his worth and praising him forever. This is what Paul told the Colossian church in chapter 1, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. But how is God going to make this happen? How is God going to change you and me uh, into the image of Christ? How are we going to become like Jesus? How is that going to result in the exaltation of Jesus Christ? How is he going to fulfill these two goals? Well, this moves us to our second point, the means. How is he going to do it? By these means. So the divine plan of God, the divine purposes of God, require certain things to be so. This, this, I think these two verses here are some of the richest verses in all of Scripture, and, and I wish I could spend weeks preaching to you about each of these means that are found in these two verses that God uses to accomplish his purposes in us and his design for his Son. But the great Romans 8 must proceed. The, the march must go on. We must get done next week. So I can't spend a whole lot of time examining each of these means. We are going to look at them quickly, but we're going to do a flyby, and I hope you see it as it flies by. I, I was up at the top of Darlin Mountain the other day, not the other day, <laughs> years ago, 15 years ago, with some friends. <laughs> I do need a sabbatical. <clears throat> so we were up there with some friends, and uh, we were at the very top of Darlin Mountain, um, and we heard a noise off in the distance. Before we knew it, two F-16s flew below us in the valley on past us. That's a flyby. During that flyby, I didn't learn much about the weapon system in that plane. I didn't learn much about its aerodynamic design. I didn't learn much about anything about that. I just saw an F-16. That's it. That's all I knew. Well, you're going to have a theological flyby here uh, in the next few minutes of these five important things that you'll see. So I hope, I hope that you'll at least see this theological jet as it flies by in the next few minutes. Uh, the means to accomplish God's purpose and goal is seen here in these two verses. These verses contain what has been called the five links of a golden chain. The five links of a golden chain. And here are the links. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. I'm going to talk a little bit about each one in a flyby fashion, okay? <clears throat> foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Our salvation began with the foreknowledge of God. Many people think that their salvation began with the sinner's prayer that they prayed when they were in junior high Bible camp. That's not when your salvation began. Paul says here, and it's affirmed in other places in Scripture that our salvation began with the foreknowledge of God. Look at the verse. For those he foreknew, that's the first thing in the list, the foreknowledge of God. The first thing that we must say about a believer is that God foreknew them. 
This, among other things, clearly teaches that salvation is of God, not me. He foreknew me, not man, not myself. And I want you to notice this, that we have nothing to do with any of these five golden links. And I'll repeat that a few times to make sure you get it. We have nothing to do with any of these five links of our salvation. We weren't alive when this particular link happened, foreknowledge, which means it was required to happen before time, foreknew. Our salvation doesn't begin with this sinner's prayer that we pray to, to acknowledge our need, to, to, to reach out to Christ. No. And I want you to notice here that in this list of five that I read for you earlier, do you see faith? Is faith one of those five? No. Why? Because faith is something that we're involved in. And our salvation, we have nothing to be involved in. This is really important. Paul left out th that word intentionally. There's not six links, there's five links to our salvation. And faith isn't one of them. Foreknowledge isn't God looking into the future and saying, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so, they believed in me, so I'm gonna write their name in the book. That's not God's foreknowledge. That's, that's not it, that's foresight. Paul used the word foreknowledge. All right, this is important to, to get in your brain. Uh, if God were to look in the future, what do you think he would see? A bunch of rebels, a bunch of dead sinners out there doing their own thing. That's what he would see. He wouldn't see people out there, oh, they're so good, they're choosing me. I really like them, I'm gonna put them on a list. No. If he were to look into the future, he would see dead rebels going at it. That's what he would see. And so it doesn't mean that. It, 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 this is important to understand. Paul meant foreknowledge, not foresight. The word foreknew has the idea of foreloving. It, it's the idea that comes from the scripture when it talks about a loving relationship and, and, and married couples in the Bible knowing one another. It's, it's, a, it's a, a loving relationship. God set his love on us before time began. Before Adam and Eve were born, God set his love on you. You by name, by DNA. He set his love on you. That's why this is so profound. He foreknew you. He set his love on you. So what's the next link? Because of that, he predestined you. Do you see that? For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He predestined to be conformed to the image of God. Now, predestination is a lot like election, but it's different, a little bit different than election. And so I want to read for you a verse that's normally associated with election, but it's also associated with predestination. Ephesians 1.4, even as he, that is God, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So before time began, he foreknew us and predestined us to be saved, predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. It begins with foreknowledge and then moves to predestination. And what does predestination mean? It means pre-knowing destiny. It's a foreordination. The word literally means to appoint or determine beforehand. God before time appointed you to become like Jesus, which requires your salvation, your conversion. This means that our destiny is determined by God before we breathe one breath. Have you figured out yet 
that you don't control your destiny? That's an important discovery in life. God has determined to save his people and eventually conform them into the image of his son. This will happen, why? Because all that God plans, he accomplishes. No plan of his can be thwarted. He's in the heavens doing as he pleases, which is conforming his people into the image of his son. As we're reading through the New Testament, we come across Acts 2.23, and the first time you read it, at least understand that it's shocking. It says that God predetermined that a group of Jews would kill his own son. God planned it. God planned the death of his own son at the hands of the Jews. And in the same way, God plans our salvation, our redemption, by that death. So God used sinful man to accomplish his purposes so you and I could be saved. That's amazing. Ephesians 1.5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is God's plan. This is his purpose. To for, he foreknew us, and so he predestined us to salvation. That's the second link. The third link is calling. Do you see that there in the next verse? And those he, whom he predestined, verse 30, he also called. So there's three links in this chain, golden chain of salvation. At this point, at the point of calling, God enters human time, human history, and intersects with real human beings. We are the recipients, personally, of this divine call. When you're saved, you respond to the gospel because God is calling, and we respond. This story is, is demonstrated by Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead. I, I refer to this often because it so clearly reveals God's hand in the matter. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, what did Lazarus do? Did he sit there and contemplate the, the you know, comparison between staying where he was or coming forth? No, he came forth. Why? Because God said, come forth. God called him out of the tomb. In the same way, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were unable to respond to anything until God said, come. That's the call of God. That's what every single Christian hears, not audibly, spiritually, and responds to. The reason the gospel starts to make sense to you, the reason you decide that you love God instead of hate him, is because of this call. He changes your life, he regenerates your soul, and you respond to the gospel because it makes sense to you now. What was going on the day before this call? Dead in sin is what was going on. Hatred of God, hostile, it says in Romans 8, towards the things of God. But here in the call is the first time we actually experience the love of God personally. When God calls you, that's when you begin to sense your need for him, your need for his forgiveness, the futility of the life you're currently living on your own terms, and a need for God to do something about it. And so you come by faith and respond to this call. And it's not a call, by the way, that is a, um, something you might hear at Evangelistic Crusade, you know, Billy Graham saying, come forward and receive Jesus Christ. That's not the call of God, that's the call of Billy. The call of God is effectual. In fact, theologians call it the effectual call. It is effective. God's doing the calling, and so we respond. Our God is in the heavens. He's doing all that he pleases. If he calls you, you come. 
That's it. Here's an interesting sidelight. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, called many, and they didn't come. Why? Because he wasn't responsible for the effectual call. The Holy Spirit is. You know how many people believed in Jesus at the time of the ascension? After Jesus died on the cross, you know how many believers had been convinced by Jesus himself? 120. <laughs> 120 out of the hundreds of thousands that heard Jesus say, come unto me and I'll give you rest. Only 120. It requires a divine act of God to grab hold of your heart and pull you Christward for you to respond to the call. And that's what's going on here. That's this call, the effectual call. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us, that is God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages. God's purpose was established before the ages, before time began in Christ Jesus to save his people by the calling of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice again that from foreknowledge through calling is all of God. You've got nothing to do with it. It's all of God. This means that we cannot undo what God has done. What a wonderful foundation for our security in Christ. The next link is justification. This is the fourth link. So we have foreknowledge, predestination, calling, and now justification. Paul spent three chapters talking about explaining justification to these Roman readers, to us who's reading this letter. This is, of course, a work of God's grace. It refers, justification that is, refers to a believer being made right with God by God. God declares us not guilty. God justifies us. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. So, if you stop there, you might, you might think, well, God's just sweeping my sins under the rug. He's just saying, oh, I like you, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll just sweep that under the rug. No, finish the verse. Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty that you and I owe. Jesus died on the cross with our sins when he died. Our sins have been fully paid for, not ignored, in Christ Jesus. The fifth, the fifth link in this golden chain is glorification. You see that? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 30. This is the final stop for the believer. This is our eternal home in glory with Christ forever and ever. And to affirm the security of the believer, Paul used the past tense in each of these verbs. Do you notice that? Do you feel glorified? Well, we're not really fully glorified yet. There's a, we're partly glorified. We have the eternal life that we'll always have, but eternal glorification really hasn't been fulfilled, completed yet, has it? And yet Paul talks here, talks here as if it's a done deal. You've been glorified. It's that sure, that certain, if you're in Christ. If God foreknew you, 
<laughs> if it begins with foreknowledge, it ends here with glorification. There's no stop, there's no interruption. Why? Because God accomplishes all that he wills every time. This never doesn't happen. And so Paul does the natural thing. Anybody who's hit a home run out of the park is they stand there and look at it and, everybody, and ask everybody else to look at it. He says this in verse 31. What do you think about that? Right? In, in the National Basketball Association, some guy like Damian Lillard throws a three-pointer down from half court with ease, and he stands back and looks at the crowd and goes, what do you think of that? This is Paul doing the same thing. Look at what God has done for us. Look at all we have in Christ. What do we say about this? What do you think of that? Is what Paul's doing here. What a great transition. What a great way to move from the, this, this commitment by God, this certainty of his person and his work in us, his divine purpose, to this now, divine love. This is what his purpose is based on. His deep, eternal, abiding, divine love. This is why he can pull this all off. Let me read for you verses 31 through 34. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against any of God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. These verses, I think, clearly communicate the love of God for us, his people. Look with me, if you would, at these things. How does, how does Paul here get us to see the love of God? In these verses, 31 through 34, he uses four questions. Four questions, two of which we'll cover today, two next week as we conclude Romans 8 study. But he uses four questions to cement the, God, the, the love of God into the minds of his people. You must know this, Paul is saying. God loves you. So he's asking us as Christians to think, to use our brains. Look at the evidence. Does it not show you that God loves you? He wants us to recall all that God has done for us in Christ and, and wants us to apply the ramifications of these things to our daily lives. It's one thing to know intellectually that God loves us. It's another whole thing to apply the ramifications of that love to my life today. That's what Paul wants us to think about. That's what Paul wants us to get into our heads. And, of course, these four questions require thinking to get the answers. So let's look at the first question there in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, you could sit around in your small group and discuss that for an hour and a half, couldn't you? With ease. And in case you can't, get a hold of thousands, one of thousands of commentaries that spend pages and pages and pages on this comment. If God is for us, who can be against us? The question is asked to help us understand that there is ultimately no opposition that can defeat us as Christians. 
There's no enemy, no amount of suffering that can undo God's plan for us. If he has a plan, it will be completed. Do you remember this verse from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6? He who began a good work in you will complete it. That's right. <laughs> who is this God that Paul is talking about? Sounds like a good God to me, but let's just unpack that first since that's where Paul starts. He's the one who foreknew us, just in this context. He's the one who foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified us, and glorified us, and will glorify us. Speaking of this same God, uh, the prophet Isaiah says this, actually speaking for God. Remember the, for, the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, Things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. That's the God we're talking about here, the God who is for us, that God. This God has demonstrated his sovereign power throughout human history over and over and over. Do you remember what he did with Abraham? He brought him out of Ur. Do you remember what he did with the people of Israel? He brought them out of Egyptian slavery, out of Babylonian captivity. He brought Jesus out of the grave. That's the God that Paul's talking about, that he wants you to know he's for us. That God is for me, not just us corporately, me individually, you individually. And he demonstrates this amazing, sovereign, transforming love all the time in human history, in fact, every time someone comes to faith, he demonstrates his sovereign power to change things. What happened to you when you came to faith? You came from darkness to light, from death to life. These are miracles, friends. It happened to you, it happened to me, it happens to everyone who comes to Christ by faith. This is a demonstration by God on a daily basis of his sovereign love. This is the holy God of Romans 1. It's the loving God of Romans 5. He says this in Romans 5, 8, but God shows us, shows us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The words God is for us is a reaffirmation of his covenant love for his people something he promised to do for us before we were born, to love us, foreknow us. A covenant love that was initiated in eternity past, announced to Adam and Eve, ratified in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, reaffirmed throughout the New Testament and experienced by Christians every day. That love. These four simple words are the richest and weightiest in all of Scripture. God is for us. Do you have a pen? Do you have a highlighter? Mark it in your Bible. Circle it. Put arrows to it. God is for me. It's not just your mom anymore. God is for you. <clears throat> to cement this further into your mind, I want to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 56, which was read for us just a moment ago. If you have your Bible, put your finger in Romans 8 and turn with me to Psalm 56. I'm not sure, but I suspect that the Apostle Paul was thinking about this psalm as he wrote Romans 8. 
This psalm speaks to the truth that I'm trying to explain to you. This psalm cements into the minds of its readers this very thing. God loves me. Not us. Sure, he loves us. Sure, he loves his church. He loves me. Me, my DNA. That's what he loves. Look at this chapter. What do you see here in this chapter? I want to draw your focus first to verse 9. Do you see verse 9? Everything hinges on this verse. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. So David had all these fears mounting up in his body, in his mind. He was running scared. If you look at the introduction, David wrote this when the Philistines seized him in Gath. He was a prisoner of war at this point with enemies that weren't nice. All right? That's a, if there's going to be an opportunity for you to fear, that would be it. Right? All other fears might be less than that in life. But we have significant fears, don't we? We have things that concern us. We have things that make us a little bit distraught. Things that we would categorize as fear. This psalm was written for you. Romans 8, 31 through 35 was written for you. It's written for us fearful people. Times when we get a little anxious about all sorts of things in our life. Our children, our income, our workplace, our church, our loved ones. We get fearful. And God says, hey, I've got this. I'm for you. I'm for you. This is amazing. Look at verse 8 in Psalm 56. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He keeps track of all these fears that concern us, that bring us to tears. And he says, God says, I know them all. I know them all. I'm for you. Verse 9, God is for me in the midst of all my fears. Many times in the Christian life we slip into fear. We fear that the forces that we're facing will undo us, interrupt God's plan, but the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to say, no, that will not happen because I'm for you. I'm for you. Paul says, Christian friends, think if God is for us, if God is for us, there's nothing that stands a chance against you. Don't fear them. Don't fear it. Nothing can harm you. Do you remember when Abraham went to rescue his nephew Lot? Lot had been captured in a skirmish with five Mesopotamian kings. What happened? Lot went and rescued him. In the middle of the night, he just charged into this camp with these five powerful kings, stole his nephew back, and ran off. And Paul, I mean, uh, Abraham wakes up the next day and says, what did I do? <laughs> these guys are really powerful kings. I, you start fearing. Genesis 15, verse 1. What did God tell Abraham? Abraham, do not fear. I am your shield. Don't fear. I'm your shield. Don't worry about it, Abraham. I am for you. Nothing is going to happen to you, Abraham, until I fulfill my promise to you, until you receive the result which I promised to you, which was a son. And by Genesis 15, that son had not yet been born. Abraham was invincible. 
Nothing could harm him. Nothing could get in the way of God's plan for him. <clears throat> Has God promised us anything? Does God have a plan for us? Until it's accomplished, Christian friend, you're invincible. Invincible. Nothing can interrupt his plan. Nothing can shake the plan of God, the purpose of God in your life, no matter who or what it is. You're invincible, just like Abraham. Just like every Christian throughout history. You say, well, what about, I know a lot of Christians who die. Really? So was God not for them? <laughs> I think that's one of the greatest ways God confirms that he is for us. He allows us to die and go into his presence. Look at the second question that Paul asks to cement the love of God into our hearts, into our minds. Verse 32, Romans chapter 8, back there with me. Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That makes you think. If God was willing to sacrifice his son, the preeminent one, the, the most valuable one, he was willing to sacrifice him for us, what does that mean about the rest of our existence? It means some important things. God wants us to know, through the Apostle Paul, that beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God will not hold or withhold any good from us. If he's willing to give us the best right up front, everything else is a simple act. Look what it says in Psalm 84:11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So God is not only our sovereign protector, but he's also our sovereign benefactor. He's both. Paul communicates this by connecting us to all that we have in Christ in this verse. Look at the verse again. He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, that was Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here we see the costliness of this redemption. Paul wants us to understand the connection between God's love and what it cost him to fulfill this plan of redemption. What is that? What did it cost him? The life of his son. That's significant. God the Father did not spare Jesus the Son. He, he paid the ultimate price for our redemption. There's nothing else that he could have done. There's nothing else of more value. Oh, the cost of the death of Christ for our redemption. And of course, this is beyond our ability to fully comprehend, but we do know this. We do comprehend this. We do see this as the F-16 flies by. God loves me. And it was a costly love. The second thing I think that this, this verse reveals to us concerning how God demonstrates his love in this gift of his son is the effectiveness of our redemption. Not just the cost, but the effectiveness of this redemption. God the Father gave God the Son. There, there is no more sure solution for our sin than this. God the Son died for me. He died in my place. No amount of regret, guilt, penance, indulgences, good works, tear shedding could accomplish that redemption. Only the death of the Son of God for me. 
<clears throat> the death of Jesus, God's son, didn't just make our redemption possible. This is an unfortunate error in common everyday theology that the death of Jesus made our redemption possible. Paul teaches here and in many places elsewhere that the death of Jesus didn't make our redemption possible, it guaranteed our redemption. This is important. And if you think about that comment for a moment, that the death of Jesus guaranteed our redemption, it'll let you know what we believe and teach at this church concerning those things. The death of Jesus guaranteed your redemption, and yet we teach and believe that not all people will be in heaven. Let me try to illustrate what I mean. The death of Jesus isn't like a loaded gun that requires someone to pull the trigger for it to fire. It's not like that. We don't have to pull the trigger of faith for this to work. That is not what's required. We, we don't have to be involved in our salvation for us to be saved. We don't have to make sure we're doing something right in order to be saved. Our salvation is accomplished and applied by the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, which is why Jesus could say as he hung on the cross, it is finished. Right? He didn't say it is finished and I sure hope someone believes. No. It's finished. Thirdly, the results of our redemption. What's Paul talking about here? How the the love of God is confirmed in the death of Christ. We see the costliness of our redemption, the effectiveness of redemption, and now the results of our redemption. We all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? And unfortunately, people understand that to mean God loves the world so much that Jesus came to die. It's not what that means. The verse means this, this is how God shows his love for us. Jesus died. For God so loved, God loved the world like this by sending his son. That's what the, the word or the verse means. The point, every other gift is of a lesser value than Jesus, God's son. Every other gift is ancillary, secondary, supplementary. All these good gifts that we enjoy from God are so much below, one could say infinitely below the gift of his son towards us. But since he's given us the most valuable thing, certainly he will graciously give us all the rest, is what verse 32 is saying. What does this include? What does all the rest include? All things in verse 32 includes, besides in this own context here, besides foreknowledge, justification, calling, sanctification, glorification. It includes the multi-dimensional ministry of the Holy Spirit is what this includes. This all things. He draws us. You know that you wouldn't come to Christ, you wouldn't believe the gospel unless Jesus through the Holy Spirit drew you. He convicts us of sin. He nurtures us spiritually. He transforms us into the image of Jesus, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But God's gracious giving goes even further into these ancillary areas. It includes freedom from the bondage of sin. That's pretty significant, isn't it? But it's an, it's an ancillary, a supplementary gift 
It's, it's a consequence, a result of the redemption that we have in Christ. This, this bondage, this freedom from bondage of sin looks back to Romans 6 where Paul said that we shouldn't continue to sin. Why? Because we're in Christ now. We have Jesus. That's why sin no longer has dominion over us. We, we can actually not sin as we live in fellowship with Jesus and as we live in fellowship with one another. We can choose not to sin. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's actively working in us. Because we no longer are enslaved to sin, but we're enslaved to God. We, we don't have to be bound to anger, hurtful words, addictions, pride, selfishness, laziness. Why? Because we have Jesus. That's why. He's broken the bondage of sin in our lives. Another result of our redemption is that we now belong to Christ. How, do you, how so? Well, he made you. That's his first claim on you. And Paul, what Paul's saying here is he's redeemed you. He's died for you. So he owns you twice, not just once. He owns you twice. We now belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Listen, Christian friend, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is a result of, a consequence of being redeemed by Christ, being purchased by Christ. He owns you. We are his, not our own. Our lives are now his property. Think of the massive implications of that truth. One of the reasons that this is important is because we're no longer the boss anymore. He is our Lord and Savior. He calls the shots. We follow him. We must deny ourselves and take up the cross, as Jesus explained. And if you think about that illustration that Jesus used of commitment to him of those who've been redeemed, it must have been shocking to those people. I mean, we've heard it so often, it doesn't shock us anymore. Oh, yeah, we've got to take up our cross. You know the only people who took up crosses in Jesus' day were condemned criminals on their way to execution. So Jesus said, you must take up your cross and follow me. Everybody who heard that knew what he meant. You must follow me and die. Die to yourself to start with. This is substantial. We must embrace that mentality. We must renounce all expectations and claims of our future. As condemned criminals were led away in Jesus' day, they were led away from their homes, led away from their bank accounts, led away from social circles to execution. Condemned criminals don't, don't plan their next vacation. If they're on death row, they're not meeting with their financial advisor about things. No. I'm not saying that and neither is Paul, that Christians shouldn't take vacations or have investment strategies. I'm saying, and I think Paul is too, that these things can no longer rule us. They can't be the most important thing to our lives. We can't be consumed by them. We, we, they can't take up all of our energy. We were bought with a price. We are not our own. We belong, we belong to God. Our lives, if we're in Christ, have been turned upside down, haven't they? 
They've taken on a new trajectory, a new purpose. It used to be all about me, but once I come to faith in Christ, now it becomes about him. He is our Lord. We've given up that right. He calls the shots. We follow joyfully. This will include what the world would call risk. Risk. Financial risk, social risk, emotional risk, even physical risk. Paul's referring to a wholehearted life of sacrifice for the cause of Christ. And the world would say, that's risky and stupid. We must battle, though, the fear that comes with these kind of risks. Those kind of fears are natural. But that's why Paul asked the first question in verse 31. If God is for us, who's against us? Nobody. We don't really need to be fearful. We don't have to be left to ourselves wondering whether or not God's going to show up to sustain us. No. If God is for us, who's against us? He's saying God is for us. We, we tend to shrink back at this level of fanatical commitment to Christ because we're afraid of the consequences. We, we might not be able to bear up under such a weight. What are we going to do then? What if God doesn't come through for me like he has for others? What if I'm getting crushed and he doesn't know it? Jesus says, I'm for you. You see, God ordains your circumstances and knows your fears. Psalm 56. He's for you. He's given up his son to accomplish these purposes in you. He's given up his son so that you'll know that everything else that you have in life is minor in comparison. He who gave up his son, how much more with him will he not give us all things? You see, friends, what we're really battling underneath our fear is unbelief. We're, we're not sure that God will actually come through and meet my needs. We're not sure he'll provide all things. But Paul is saying there is no ultimate loss, no irreparable damage, to be feared for those who are in Christ. And if we do experience a crushing loss, and by the way, we all do experience crushing losses, when those crushing losses come, we cannot blame God for not knowing or caring. We can thank him for removing an idol. That's what's happening. Remember what he's doing, the first goal of his divine purpose? is to conform you to the image of his son so that we will be used by God to lift up and exalt Jesus Christ forever and ever. This morning, we have uh, one of the things that we look forward to most at this church, and that is the Lord's Supper. Think about the Lord's Supper with me for a second. Do these elements communicate to you that God is for you? <laughs> There's nothing that, that communicates that more clearly than these elements. They are pictures of the broken body of Christ, his death. If anything, communicates that he's for you. This, these elements remind you of that clearly. The broken body of Christ I'm looking at and putting into my mouth communicates he is for me. The spilled blood that takes away the sins of the world was spilt for my sins. He's for me. 
which is why our elders say, when they hand you the elements, the body and blood of Christ for you. Not for you, plural, for you, singular. The body and blood of Christ for you. This is why we require that you know Christ before you come partake. You, you must know Jesus. You must embrace the gospel for this to mean anything, for this to really experience, be experienced as God intends it to be, as a source of great encouragement and spiritual nurture for his people, those whom he is for. So as you come this morning, we're going to ask you to come down the center aisle, having evaluated your life, knowing that God is for his people, now come and participate in the drama that confirms that. God is for me. Look at the elements. He's for me. He's for you. I'm going to ask the elders who are present to come serve you and, and demonstrate through their service that God is for you.